When I was asked to introduce our speaker for this evening, Elaine Brown, I was thrilled, honored, and intimidated. For me, Elaine Brown represents much, much more than just another speaker. And I hope she doesn't uh, get at me for saying this, but she is literally, for me, an historical figure, even though we're probably the same age, an historical figure who represents much more to me than just history. She represents a piece of my own personal history and personal struggles of philosophy, integrity, commitment, values, and conscience that I have wrestled with from the time 30 years ago when I was a young black college student from Chicago until this very day. 30 years ago, I was a student in college in the middle of a social and personal revolution. I, along with tens of thousands of students of color around the country, were in the midst of redefining who we were. As I like to say, if you came to college in 1965 when I did, you came Negro and you left black. And so we were in the midst of redefining who we were, what our fundamental values were, coming to a new set of understandings of the world, the history and role of black people in that world, the history and role of people of color in that world, of third world people, of oppressed people in that world, and the responsibilities that we had as black students, as students of color, to our communities and to ourselves. It was an extraordinary time to be a student, and especially a black student. We were in the midst of times and events that literally transformed the society and transformed our lives. As students, we wrestled with and sought understanding of the many complex social, economic, philosophical, political, and spiritual issues facing us as black students and students of color, and mostly, and mostly facing our communities. We sought answers, we sought understanding, and we sought intellectual, political, and ideological leadership. The Black Panther Party and leaders like Elaine Brown provided much of that intellectual, political, and ideological leadership along with challenges and strong criticisms that rocked us to our very core. The Black Panther, Black Panther Party served as a gnawing conscience as we received our education and prepared for leadership. Even though many of us attended racist and sexist, predominantly white institutions, we were privileged and understood that. And the questions that led from that fact were not easy. How do we act on and take advantage of that privilege and not forget the millions of poor and oppressed people from the very neighborhoods we left? What good were we doing studying in these white ivory towers when we could be back home living with the people and working for the people? How were we to assume leadership in these racist and sexist institutions while remaining true to our own values and not losing our integrity? How do you engage the forces of oppression, work in these institutions, and not lose your soul, either becoming like them in their evil or believing the hype that you are somehow better than the others? Elaine Brown represents those who effectively and rightly raise these challenges right in our faces. And to this day, for many of us, the questions and the answers haunt us. Elaine Brown has not backed away from these issues. She has been described as a powerful, impassioned activist motivated by the fight for equality and social justice that motivated her 30 plus years ago. She has continued to stay in the trenches fighting. Currently, much of her work is around issues of juvenile incarceration. And she has fought and continues to fight issues of sexism as well as racism. 
You may have heard that when she assumed leadership of the Black Panther Party, she did it as a strong black woman and forced the organization to look at the sexism that existed within its structures. As I'm sure you will see, Elaine Brown is known for her broad command of information and data and her ability to analyze information and use that analysis to help us understand the intersections among race, class, and gender. The description I like best, though, is that Elaine Brown is political, topical, and fearless. She is fired not only, she is fired not only by an enormous intellect, but a burning, genuine emotional connection and empathy with victims of social injustice. She is a fighter who has been fighting for 30 years and has no interest in quitting now. Now, after her talk, Ms. Brown will be willing to take questions and answers, and all that we ask is that, uh, as you participate in that, that you use one of the microphones on either side of the auditorium. Now, one final note. In her autobiographical memoir, A Taste of Power, A Black Woman's Story, she recounts her life from her neighborhood of North Philadelphia to her leadership in one of the country's most important and influential organizations, the Black Panther Party. And I might add that the UCSB bookstore has copies of her book available for purchase this evening in the back, and I understand she may even be willing to sign some of them. Through her writings, her work, and her life, Elaine Brown continues to create a long-lasting legacy in the history of black people and women, helping younger generations understand the struggle for equality. It's my honor and privilege to introduce to you Elaine Brown. for coming out and uh, although was, if you're assigned to be here you know I'm not even really thanking you no I'm kidding because <laughs> um, sometimes that happens you know um, last time I was here in Santa Barbara a bank blew up <laughs> so uh, it's been a long time well, I'm sure that's part of the lore of UC Santa Barbara isn't it <laughs> And a guy that I knew was actually charged with that, and he was really quite a wonderful brother, but I believe he went off to uh, Canada where he may still be. But in any case, uh, that's sort of my thinking, that's sort of what I remember about UC Santa Barbara. It's sort of what I remember about America at the time. We were pretty much angry about, you know, capitalism and racism and all those things. And now we're just kind of like meandering along down the road with Bush too in, in office, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> you kind of wonder what has really happened in low these 30 years. Um, but isn't it interesting, this, I just want to mention about this, uh, your president of the university system having now debunked everything, right, with uh, saying that the SAT will be effectively set aside as a standard or a measure for entrance into the UC system. Well, that kind of gets rid of the bell curve off the top, doesn't it? <laughs> now, are you aware of the bell curve, right? And the whole concept of the bell curve was that blacks were inherently intellectually inferior as measured by uh, the SAT, right? And there's this whole thing about the black-white curve, the gap between blacks and whites in the SAT. And so now, goodbye, end of the story. And uh, 
but there'll be other things that people will be able to bring up because when we want to talk about Black History Month and we want to talk about black people in America, the very fact that we are still talking about black people in America, uh, the very fact that we have Black History Month and uh, we raise questions like what is the issue of race in America, let's have a dialogue as Clinton did to sidestep meaningful activity, let's have a dialogue about race relations, then we know something is happening here. And I think in order to talk about some of the history of the Black Panther Party, as has been alluded to or uh, discussed earlier, and in order to talk about the history of black people in America during this uh, month of uh, black history, you know, George Bush the other day said he was celebrating uh, Black History Month. And so I was thinking to myself, well, you know, it's kind of probably pretty pretty accurate. You know, he's got all these black people doing so much good work for him. You know, Condoleezza Rice and uh, he's got, uh, what is it, Colin Powell out there being a henchman for him. You know, Colin Powell I like to think of as, uh, as Clarence Thomas with a gun. And, um, and so he's got all these black people, so he probably is happy to have Black History Month because blacks are taking care of so much ugly business for him and keeping the pressure off of him so people are confused the way we were during the Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill thing, like this is our brothers, our sister, all that kind of stuff. So I think that in order, though, to talk about issues regarding race, we have to talk about them concretely and analytically. You know, one of the things that I did learn from being in the Black Panther Party is that you have to have an objective standard. You can't just say, well, I believe this is true. You have to have something to measure things by. I mean, what is the problem in terms of black people in America? And this question is asked often. And how does it manifest itself? Well, let's first talk about which is something I am working on very often, and that is the number of blacks in prison, particularly young black, young black boys in prison. In the state of Georgia, 94% of the children tried and adjudicated and convicted as adults were black, mostly black boys between the ages of 13 and 17 years old. Now, if you were to ask the DA of DeKalb County, which is an area of Atlanta that embraces Atlanta, uh, why this is true, he would tell you, well, it's true because Black boys are the only one committing crimes. You know, so the way James Q. Wilson at uh, UCLA talks about the super predator, the inherent, uh, perhaps a criminal gene. That also now debunked by the Human Genome Project, you know, and despite their greed in trying to get to the, finish the race, of course, we now know that the Human Genome Project have showed us that we have so much in common that race is really not a definition. But we now still say, we talk about race. You know when we put on these uh, forms, what race are you and how everybody likes to crowd over into other because nobody wants to be black. You know, it's like, no, I'm mixed. <laughs> I'm not really black. <laughs> everybody understands what being black means in America. And it's not a color. It's a situation and a condition. And it's based on any number of things, but certainly one of them is this theory about race and race questions. So in order for us to talk about race, we have to talk honestly and critically. And one of the things is, why are there so many black men in prison? Well, as I say, J. Tom Morgan, the district attorney of DeKalb County, would suggest that the reason is because black people are the only ones committing crimes. And, uh, you know, and that notwithstanding the, the, the whole question of crack cocaine and, the, you know, the disparity, mandatory sentencing, three strikes, two strikes, Georgia's a two-strike state, all that sort of thing. Notwithstanding any of those issues, just, just the question is that it's blacks who are committing crimes because we, we hear about black on black crime as though there's, this is something more insidious than white on white crime, which we never hear about. 
uh, or white on black or black on white or whatever it is. So uh, the point is that there's a notion that there's a reason why all these black people are in prison. One of the reasons is because they commit, black people commit crimes. And the other is that there's this whole class of people, these young, uh, you remember this case of the wilding in New York where people talked about these young boys roving in wolf packs? People bought into that. Most people actually bought into that. Sort of the way we bought into the uh, welfare uh, situation, you know, where Clinton sold us the welfare reform uh, legislation of Newt Gingrich by telling us that uh, the problem in the black community was, un was so many teen pregnancies, all these unwed teen pregnancies, as though uh, this were a meaningful uh, statement, and not, notwithstanding not accurate. Um, but there's something vile, criminalization of poverty and so forth. And so we, we find that black people are getting welfare checks and going to prison and there's some kind of something wrong, sort of moral, morally inherently inferior and, and also uh, criminal. And then there's the whole education SAT uh, question. Uh, you know, before Atkinson came out with his statement about the SAT, I took the position and I still take that position, but now it could become irrelevant. Uh, that, um, uh, like Pavlov did many years ago, I could get any dog and after three years train them to pass the SAT. So that's how relevant the SAT is. I know a lot of you paid $750 to do that, but I swear to God, I could take a dog and help him pass the SAT. So that's, that's what it means, nothing. Uh, it is not a test of anything. Certainly not intellect, uh, and certainly not worthiness of entrance into college, right? Neither is any, neither any of these other things. You know, I spoke at a couple, I've spoken at a couple of schools recently whose names you would not know unless you just happen to live in these states or these little communities, which are, you know, like $30,000, $35,000 private uh, liberal arts colleges uh, throughout America. They, they exist. And uh, you've never heard of them, but you've probably heard of the Sorbonne in Paris. And at the Sorbonne, uh, the tuition is nothing because the French have made a public policy decision to educate their people. So we, however, have this whole thing about affirmative action. We don't want blacks to get in under any special privileges because, um, you know, uh, we should have a meritocracy in America, and it is. And, you know, we talk about the, co the content of our character, as Wardell Connerly uh, talked about. You know, his name is Wardell. And uh, Wardell Connerly's uh, theory on we don't want to have black people feel inferior. Well, now we know the whole SAT thing was a joke anyway. And so the point is we do talk about race. And we know that race isn't about just we talked about multiculturalism and all these other issues as, 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 as we talked about tonight a little bit. The, I'm sponsored here by the Multicultural Center and, and others, um, none of which existed, you know, before the Black Panther Party and some of the stuff that we did. All this stuff is, is all new, well, new within the context of my life. So we talk about multiculturalism, we talk about many other things, but we all know in the, day, in the end of the day in America, we're talking about black people and white people. That's why everybody's trying to be other. So we're talking about black people and white people for a reason, and that's what we have to make a determination about. Why are we talking about black and white? And what does this mean? And so getting back to the other questions as to what the status of black people is today in America, let's talk about, uh, we've talked about the prisons, uh, talking about education, undereducated, uh, underemployed, unemployed, uh, high poverty rates in the state of Georgia, in the city of Atlanta, for example, where I live, 90% of school children in the public schools are black, 80-some percent of them qualify for free or subsidized lunch. And what does that tell us? It tells us that all the black children in Atlanta, black Mecca, are poor. 
And why, is, why are they poor? Why is that situation? And then we have a situation where uh, we can talk about the health status of blacks, uh, you know, black women dying of uh, breast cancer, double the rate of white women, black infant mortality rate, twice that of the white infant mortality rate, black maternal uh, mortality rate uh, at four times that of the white mortal, uh, maternal mortality rate and so forth. So what, is the, uh, what does this status tell us? Does it tell us that there's something wrong with black people in America? And this is what a lot of people would suggest when they ask the question, well, well why can't black people, you know, the Vietnamese come here, you know you've heard this one, right? You know, the Vietnamese come here and they do really well. There's like five Vietnamese came from South Vietnam you know, don't want to participate in any kind of revolutionary change, that's another story. Come here and build businesses. The rest of the people live in Vietnam. So it's not all Vietnamese come here. So we can't measure Vietnamese versus blacks. And this is kind of ridiculous. The Koreans come here and they do well. Eight Koreans from South, from Seoul come here and they do well. What does do well mean? It means they get little businesses and so forth and so on. Why aren't blacks doing that? So the, the implication is, what's wrong with black people that you're so unemployed, un, uneducated, underemployed, and plus don't own anything in America? Don't even own BET anymore. Not that we ever really own BET, but we look like we own BET, but we don't even own BET. Don't even own dark and lovely hair products, you know? <laughs> which is really a deep issue when you consider that Jack Kemp is one of the principal owners of Dark and Lovely Hair Products, um, sold now worldwide throughout the African diaspora. Um, so we have a situation in which black people really are living under conditions about the same as we did in 1966 when the Black Panther Party was begun. Now, a lot of people say, well, what do you mean? What about the successes of black people? Don't you want to talk about the successes? You know, like Oprah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how we can measure that exactly. <laughs> or even measure Oprah, you know, exactly. But uh, assuming that uh, uh, Oprah would be an example of something, uh, what does it mean uh, that Oprah's on television uh, doing whatever it is that she uh, does? Um, doesn't mean anything. She's not in charge of anything. She doesn't own anything. We don't have any relationship to controlling any of the things that concern us in this country. When you think about railroads, you're not thinking about black people. When you think about airplanes, steel, oil, uh, and any of the other big industrial enterprises that are, say, in the Fortune 500, you're not thinking about black people because we don't own any of those things. And we've been here for low these 400 and some years, or however long it's been. The historians will correct me on the exact number. But the bottom line is that we don't have any control over the things that affect our lives. So we, in fact, we are poor. We have a, we have, we are, have a, uh, a low health status. These are the big measures of people. We are undereducated uh, in this country, and we are, um, as I say, we are poor. So. The question is, how do we get to be here and why are we still here like this? And notwithstanding those special people, those Michael Jordans and all the other people who are all entertainers, if you, know, if you think about it. You know, all the black people that we all know about are people who are dancing, singing, and playing. I call them like mandingos on the, on the, on the basketball teams, this mandingo team, that mandingo team, but don't own even one team you know, so forth and so on. So the question is, what is this status? It's a status of almost a third world colony within the United States of America. As a matter of fact, the infant mortality rate in, in Harlem is equal to that in Bangladesh. And Bangladesh has the highest infant mortality rate in the world. 
Now, what is that about? Does that mean that black people are simple-minded, lazy, well, you know, Oprah Winfrey says the reason she's successful is because she really worked hard, she really made the right choices, and she really believes in God. And so, obviously, the rest of us are some just atheistic, lazy, no-count, you know, uh, people, because we are not Oprah, as though there were ten places for uh, Oprah Winfrey to exist. Uh, so we have to look at the mass situation, not those four people that got into school, not those four people who, are, uh, uh, who, are, who have a job somewhere or a better job or are making millions of dollars wearing uh, certain kinds of clothes and all this sort of thing. We have to look at what the mass, the mass of our people are still living in the ghettos of America. When we think about Detroit, when we talk about the inner city, we know what we're talking about, talking about black people living in Detroit and Philadelphia, Atlanta, Chicago. I mentioned all the housing projects, I can just name them off and they're still there. And they're still being occupied by masses of black, the masses of black people. So the question is, how do we get here? And maybe what we ought to do, uh, if anything, and certainly I have an interest in doing something to change the status quo after 30-some years, um, we really haven't moved forward in any meaningful way. Some individuals have benefited from some of the struggles that have been waged, but in general, our people are a third world colony and an oppressed group in this country, and the richest and most powerful country in the, in the world, certainly the most powerful, um, militarily and otherwise. And in order to talk about how we got there, of course, and to talk about the Black Panther Party and why there ever was a Black Panther Party, we have to talk about um, the history of this country and how we all came to talk about, these, arrive at these issues. Uh, now, some people get bored when you want to talk about black history in, this, in terms of slavery, in terms of the real historical facts of how we came here and so forth and so on. But I have to talk about it, and I have to say this. You know, people feel the same way about Jews. It's like, oh, we don't really want to hear about the Holocaust anymore. Well, that's because you didn't go through the Holocaust. That's why you don't want to hear about it anymore. Or maybe you were a collaborator, or you had collaborationist ideas about it, and really don't care about what happened to other human beings. Uh, so when it comes to a black history, this is not a celebration of uh, our minimal achievements of getting a good job. The Ebony Magazine strolled down memory lane as to where we come and where, where we were and where we are. This is a recognition of what has happened in this country in order to talk about how we're going to really go forward. And not a dialogue between us as to can't we all get along, but a dialogue about where we're going to really, what kind of commitment. And why is this significant even in general? It's significant because blacks in America are a cautionary tale. Without black people, as Toni Morrison said, America would be balkanized. Without black people, we'd be angry with Jews again. We'd be angry with Mexicans. We'd be angry with Chinese or something else. So black people represent a cautionary tale in America because if, if we're not going to address the question of black people in America, we're not going to address any of the other ills in this society, a society in which Bill Gates, for example, uh, has assets equal to the assets of 100 million people in America. And when people ask me, by the way, about what's wrong with black people, I say, well, what do you mean? Uh, uh, what's wrong with black people? Uh, are you saying we made bad choices? That's the new age thing, you know. I made the right choices. This is the most irritating sentence I've ever heard in my life. You know, it's like I chose, I was thinking to myself, you know, I could be president of the United States or I could live in this ghetto. I think I'm going to stay in the ghetto. That's the, that's the choice I just made. 
I could have had a million dollars, but I chose to be a lazy, no-count somebody and stay in this ghetto and be on welfare. I would prefer to have $300 a month on a welfare check than to have $30 million in reparations. That's what I want, you see. So that's the kind of choices I made. And this is the kind of idiot conversation people have. And the way I know that it's idiot conversation is, and it is the most irritating of all the racist manifestations I hear because it's like, well, if you had just really, you, you could have had a job. You know, making five, seven dollars an hour, whatever it is, as though that's going to take you somewhere. Five, seven dollars an hour is like George Bush's offer of fifteen hundred dollars in vouchers, you know. And you know, there are people who really think that that's a great deal. I mean, it's shocking to me how we can just be beaten over the heads with just a little, little piece of propaganda. What is $1,500? Well, first of all, let's just talk about the pure meaning of $1,500 in a private school. Zip. What does it mean? Does anybody know a private school where $1,500 is going to get you there? All right, that's number one. But even so, the, you know, the immorality of saying, well, we're betting against the school's failure, and that's what we'll give you $1,500 for. You know, that's the deal. If the school is not working for three years or whatever the standard is, if it's not working, we will give those people who want to leave the school $1,500. So it's a bet against the other school. But more importantly, if you have a child in a public school system, even in California, uh, the average is running around, I don't know, four, five, six thousand dollars per child in tax money spent every year in the public school system. So you're going to take your child that was now worth five thousand dollars out for fifteen hundred dollars. That's how silly that stuff is. So you're going to lose money. The child is now worth fifteen hundred dollars in the public system. And where is the money going? Oh, probably into bombs for Baghdad, as we know. We, uh, this country has some uh, oil interest there that is maintaining the no-fly zone and so forth and so on. And we can talk about that in a minute. But the bottom line is that this business of choice in which black people are put into this box, like there's no racism anymore. We know there's no more racism because because Wardell Connerly said it, or Dinesh D'Souza, whoever he is, said it, and all these other people say there's no more racism. So the issue is you're just not really working hard enough. You've made some bad choices, or you're genetically inferior as a criminal, or genetically and intellectually inferior in all these other things. We do know that this is the dialogue in America today. This is why California uh, was shamefully supported 209, not to count 187. It was 187, 187. Also the code for murder. This is, state, this is an interesting state, isn't it? Still talking about farm workers' rights 30-some years later, off, off all these years, all the deaths of these uh, Chicano people and so forth and so on, living like dogs in the fields of this state that produces food for the entire country, fourth largest economy in the world, so forth, sitting around here watching people dying in, in the barrios and the ghettos of Los Angeles and not even feeling anything about it. So we have to come to grips with the easy way was to say, it's not my fault. I don't have any social responsibility to these little kids, like little B, the kid about whom I, I've written my, this last book, uh, and, and which I'll be happy to share uh, with you, uh, talk with you about. I don't have any social responsibility or commitment to that because that's not me. Black people even feel that way. Part of the whole situation. I got mine. I worked hard. You know, the people that said, I'm not here on affirmative action. I'm here because I had a high SAT. Well, that's out the window, isn't it? <laughs> Nobody cared about your SAT now. 
Now you have to find some new measure to distinguish yourself between having gotten in here into this school and some other school while, so, while the majority of our children and our people are languishing in the uh, ghettos of this state and this country. So we have to decide what kind of vision we have in order to talk about whether we really want to eliminate racism, whether we really want to go forward on some kind of uh, vision, of humanitarian vision, we have to re reckon with how we got here. And it wasn't because we grew up not liking each other. It, we, there was a plan here that was put into place in the beginning of this country. So I think we have to talk a little bit about the whole slave, history of slavery in America. And a lot of times, as I said, people don't want to talk about this. And you know, it's like, I didn't do it. It's not my fault. You know, and so why should I pay? Well, I didn't do it. It's not my fault. Why am I paying? You know, that's how I feel about it, too. <laughs> so, uh, but I'm still paying. We are still paying um, as a people. When I was living in France uh, in 1994, there was a guy named Paul Tuvier who was a... Uh, a big-time uh, member of the uh, French uh, Vichy government, the collaborationist government, uh, uh, during the Nazi occupation, sending thousands and thousands of Jews to their deaths and death camps of Europe um, and collaborating with Hitler. And everybody had lost track of, uh, of uh, Tuvier, mainly because he was in Bordeaux, comfortably living under the protection of the Catholic Church. But uh, yes, and we have to always remember how things happen. Let's not act, ooh, you know, it happened. That's what happened. The French Catholic Church, well, the hierarchy protected him. That's how he got to live in France all those years, uh, unfound and so forth. So somebody found him out, and they wanted to put, the French government wanted to put uh, 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 Tuvier on trial. And so the, uh, the French people who have always, you know, was sort of suspect during the war anyway as to where they exactly stood based on rampant anti-Semitism in France, you know, just said, well, wait a minute, let's not have, put this guy, this guy's 89 years old, the war's over, let's move on, let's turn the page. Isn't that how we feel in America? Let's not, you know, that's that new age kind of stuff. Let's just, let's get over it. Get over it. So you were slaves, so what? Let's move forward. This is it. This is it. This is the end of that. Let's not talk about it anymore. Let's just get past this and move on. I'm moving on to what we don't know we're moving on. We're just moving on. Get past the wounds and all that other psychobabble. And so the French were raising their voices, saying, you know, we, we can't continue to talk about Tuvier. This is over. He's old. What difference does it make anyway? And, the French, and said, we've got to turn the page of history and move forward. And the French prosecutor says, yes, we do have to turn the page of history. But in order to turn that page, we're going to have to write that page. And in America, that's what's going to have to happen. We're going to have to come to grips with this. Now, that might mean reparations, which would be a very healing form of uh, reckoning with the, the past, healing certainly for black people. And uh, we can talk about that. People can ask me about that later. But in getting back to the whole history and without going too deeply into it, I think what's critical to know is that, first of all, America was begun as a kind of market economy. This wasn't, you know, people looking for freedom uh, or freedom of religion. That was those people in Plymouth Rock, you know. But the majority, the people that went to Jamestown, the English, after Columbus, you know, uh, showed them the way of how to wipe out the native people, you know, just completely destroying the Arawak in the Bahamas and so forth. And when you, a hundred and some years later, the English picked up on this and came in and after time, after they got you know, they couldn't live on the land and went through all the things, they were very, very barbaric behavior, and finally ending up uh, completely wiping out the entire Powhatan Confederacy, all 30 tribes, including Pocahontas' daddy, who was the chief of the Powhatan. And we like to talk about the myth of, you know, Pocahontas and John Smith, and wasn't it wonderful? They grew corn, they all, those are Thanksgiving uh, myths and all this kind of stuff. Like Columbus, you know, great guy, he's a barbarian who murdered a bunch of people, you know. 
uh, who, were, who never did anything to him. And not to count a little bit stupid, which we talked about earlier, you know, looking for gold and spices, thought he was going to Malaysia and India, and really, you know, just the whole thing was a little bit, uh, it's a barbaric uh, enterprise. But Columbus didn't really create the America that we know today. That was created in Jamestown. And Jamestown was really set up in order to develop a product which, you know, in the, in the sense of finding gold, which they couldn't find gold, in the sense of feel, realizing that, wait, go, the gold is in this land. We can grow stuff here, you know, and ultimately creating uh, a market economy. As the Romans established, the only other historical model for uh, the development of a country as a market economy. Now, we like to think this was a wonderful experiment in human democracy. No, this, was an ex this wasn't an experiment. This was finding land where somebody else lives, stealing it, and then growing some stuff on it and making profits from it. Now, that's what this country started as. So there's nothing inconsistent about what's happening today. Nothing at all. When people talk about globalization. There's nothing absolutely so, totally consistent with the origins of this country. It was not started for the sake of religious freedom. You know, all the stuff about the immigrants came, you know, giving your tired, your poor. Most of the people who came here as immigrants, the European immigrants, came as contract laborers. They didn't come here looking for freedom and all. They came for a job. They got hired for a job. You know? But anyway, before we deal with that, let's talk about the slaves, the African slaves. And, and without getting into the whole history of the slave roots and, and how this all happened, suffice it to say that there was a creation of a slave trade in which uh, the triangular trade, as it's called, and some people you know, talk about what does that mean. But the bottom line was the European traders, starting with the Portuguese and the French, the, you know, everybody, the Belgians, the, the English, and, but the English for, for our purposes here in the United States, going to Africa with guns and so forth, and then trading uh, with Afri other Africans for African slaves, and then bringing the slaves, trading them for product, ultimately tobacco, sugar, uh, rice, uh, cotton, and so forth, and taking that back to the markets in Europe. And it just sort of worked very well for quite a long time as the slave trade built up and the number of slaves in America uh, evolved to be a tremendous number. And so there was the international slave trade. Now what's important about this, in my mind at least, and what I think has to be shared in the context of today's uh, race questions is not just that there was a trade, and certainly blacks were brought here for singularly those reasons, but the reason, the, the, for the market reasons. But the other thing is what happened to the blacks? First of all, most slaves, as we know, most captive slaves, those brought from Africa directly, uh, were uh, boys, males between 15 and 25 years old, which is a kind of similar sounding thing to me today. <laughs> That's just about who's in prison today. You know, black males between 15 and 25 years old. But that's, you know, just my thought about the issue. And the other group were uh, young teenage girl, uh, African girls, some of whom were not pregnant when they got on board, but were certainly uh, pregnant when they got off. We, we estimate 11 to 15 million, maybe more, we don't know. But the, the general estimates are 11 to 15 million of those captive slaves died anonymously in the ocean on that third leg of the triangular trade between Africa and North America. 15 million people. But that's not counting the millions that died just getting to the ships, is it? Uh, you know, when I'm speaking about the ships and the international trade, slave trade, you know, we think about the South because the South used the labor. But remember, in Rhode Island was one of the biggest slave trading ports in America, as was uh, Massachusetts and other uh, along the northeastern uh, coast. 
And so we have then the development of this slavery. And what happens to the slave in America is an interesting thing because it's not a war, it's a different kind of slavery. And it's not for the purpose of domestic slavery as most slaves historically had been, you know, working the house, working the little plot of land for this family or that family. This was a development of a market economy. So the slave had, fa had to face other things uh, in America that were unique to slavery in the, in the world as we know it, at least as we think we know it. And one of those things was the absolute destruction of your own uh, self and your own relationship to your history and yourself. You know, I always tell people, where is my song? You know, where, where is my dance? Uh, where is uh, my country? Uh, where is my flag? Where is my language? Where is my religion? Uh, where is my clothing? Where is my cuisine? All of it erased. Period. And nothing to replace it, because the institution of slavery as it grew up in America became an institution in which the slave didn't have a relationship to the community in which the slave found himself. Now that's an incredible statement when you think about it, because it means not only aren't you an African, this generic African, but you're not anything else. So you're a piece of property. What does that do to you? What kind of wounds does that do to you ontologically? What kind of wounds does that do to you psychologically? Well, it has a tremendous effect. So when people talk about the breakdown of the black family today, I say, you had a lot of nerve. I'll tell you when the black family got broken down. You know, it was like in 16, 1700s, when people were being mothers and fathers being sold away from each other and given new names, new identities, and nothing else uh, uh, in return for, for, for a lifetime of labor, free labor. And of course, this built the country up so that by the time 1776 came, uh, it was a country. Well, it wasn't really a country. It was a conglomeration of uh, you know, enterprises that all the men who got together and created the Constitution owned, including all the slaves in it, because most of these boys were slaveholders, especially, of course, the one I like to talk about the most, Thomas Jefferson. Because Thomas Jefferson comes down through history as being one of the great influences of the culture of America. And Thomas Jefferson, of course, tells us that I can say that all men are created equal, that we're going to have this new experiment with all men are created equal. They're not going to have the crown. But really, Thomas Jefferson and the boys were saying, you know, you know, we, we killed all these Indians, and we captured all these slaves, we grew all this product, and we're really not getting a good share of the profit. So he called it taxation without representation, but the bottom line was no profit. So here's what we're going to do. We're, we're, not, we're going to be a new, new enterprise. You know how people today talk about, let's run the country like a business? Always been run like a business. There's nothing new about that. It's always been a business. And so we have to know that the black was the backbone of that business because those hundred and some years of slavery, 250 years as it came to be, were the backbone of the development of the economy of this country. Cotton became one of the uh, biggest uh, products in the world market. Based on that, it was the development of the English textile industry and the whole industrialization coming out of that. Massachusetts, all these other places. And cotton being grown ultimately in Georgia uh, was the... Uh, the, the Georgia planters, the Georgian cotton uh, farmers were the biggest, uh, some of the richest men in the world. Not only their possession of slaves, but possession of the uh, cotton uh, production. 
which of course was labor intensive, which is why you needed so many slaves. But one of the things that Thomas Jefferson was able to do, which brings us to today, was to, to figure out how do I justify, because remember he was a big Francophile, and so he was always talking to the French about their revolution, and there was some kind of you know, relationship between the French Revolution and the American Revolution, as it was called. And so Thomas Jefferson uh, uh, talks about, well, you know, the equality of man, these enlightenment notions, and so forth. And how can we talk about the equality of man in this new country, this revolution that's taking place, while I, Thomas Jefferson, for one, and one of the biggest slaveholders in the country, right? And not to count that one of the slaves that I, I hold and own is somebody I've been raping uh, low these many years and forcing uh, into having uh, my slave children, who is the half-sister of my dead wife. Because, you know, Sally Hemings was the half-sister of Tom. You know, we all know this now. People are like, oh, you know, before DNA, uh, everybody was... People, all the Jeffersonians were saying, well, this is just not true. Thomas Jefferson lived those 40-some years after his wife died, and he never got married, he never had any children, except the children, and so forth and so on. And now we know that at least one child, based on DNA, but in fact, she, Sally Hemings had eight children. And this business of her being a mistress really is irritating to me, because uh, I don't know how you're going to be somebody's mistress when you are his property. And what do we say about a 40-some-year-old man uh, having uh, sexual relations with a 14-year-old girl? Well, today we would say something about it. So I don't, you know, it's like, well, don't use today's standards. Well, uh, then I'll use those standards. I would say the same thing. All these boys had slaves, you know, Thomas Jefferson, Washington, Benjamin Franklin, all of them. Uh, they were all slaveholders. And that's why they couldn't write anything about abolishing slavery in the first drafts of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and all of that. Now, why is that significant? It's significant significant because this country as the uh, you know became so duplicitous that it could really say this is a land of freedom except this one little detail about these millions now of Africans or now Africans lost in America who are slaves and what does Jefferson say about how that comes to be well notes on the state of Virginia and if you haven't read it um, you should and it's it's available you know, the funny thing is, this country doesn't even mind publishing this thing over and over. Like, the latest edition is 1999 or something. Uh, Notes on the State of Virginia comes in anything Jefferson's written because he only wrote one book, and it was called Notes on the State of Virginia. Everything else is just some letters. It's the only book he ever wrote. And he probably wrote that. And, and even now, it's, it's touted as beautiful literature uh, describing the nature of, of Virginia and the beautiful rolling hills of Virginia, and also talking about slavery and why America had the African as a slave. And, and, and I, I just want to read a little teeny bit from this because I, I really liked it because people who haven't read this are often shocked by it. But it begins to ring down through the centuries into some of our uh, culture in America today. And Thomas Jefferson says, well, some people would ask, you know, why not incorporate the blacks into this new nation? And he says there are differences between whites and blacks, some of which are political, but there are those that are physical and moral. He says, for example, these he says, are not these differences of no importance? He says, for example, are not the fine mixtures of red and white preferable to that eternal monotony, that immovable veil of black? He says, and besides those uh, issues of color and figure and hair, there are other physical distinctions. Uh, the blacks have less hair on their body, but they secrete less by their kidneys and more by the glands of the skin, which gives them a very strong and disagreeable odor. 
Uh, he goes on to talk about the character of the black. Black, after a hard day of labor, will be induced by the slightest amusements to sit up till midnight, knowing he must be out with the first dawn of morning. Doesn't that stuff sound like the way people describe black people today? They are at least as brave as whites and, and maybe more adventuresome, but this perhaps proceeds from a want of forethought. They are more ardent after their female, but love with them seems to be more eager desire than a tender, delicate mixture of sentiment and sensation. Uh, he says their existence appears to participate more of sensation than reflection. This must be ascribed to their disposition to sleep. An animal whose body is at rest, of course, does not reflect who does not reflect must be disposed to sleep, of course. Comparing them by their faculties of memory, reason, and imagination appears to me that in memory the blacks are equal to whites, but in reason much inferior in imagination they are dull, tasteless, and anomalous. He talks about how we can make allowances for slavery, but after all, they, did, they were living in the houses of their slave masters, so they ought to know better. He says, but, but never could I find that a black had uttered a thought above the, plain level, level, above the level of plain narration. I never saw even an elementary trait of painting or sculpture in a black. In music, they are generally gifted, more gifted than the whites with accurate ears for tune and time, but whether they will be equal to the composition of more extensive run of melody or complicated harmony is yet to be proved. He he says the only improvement of the blacks in body and mind has been observed by everyone in their first instance of a mixture with whites and proves that their inferiority is not the effect merely of their condition of life. I advance it, therefore, he says, that the blacks, whether originally a distinct race or made distinct by time and circumstance, are inferior to the white in the endowments both of body and mind. Now, this is our founding father that we worship almost, uh, uh, almost like a god to this day. Uh, Clinton used to have an annual birthday celebration for Thomas Jefferson. I mean, this would be like telling a Jew, well, you know, yes, Goebbels was a Nazi, but you know, he wrote beautiful things. I feel insulted by just the very image of Thomas Jefferson sitting in Washington, D.C. and telling me that uh, this is a hero of this country who was so much a participant in the oppression and enslavement of blacks and the justification for it, which was this racist uh, conversation that he holds in uh, Notes on the State of Virginia. Now, why is it important? People are insulted when you, they say, well, why does she have to bring all this stuff up again? Because it's there and it's, it is alive today. It's alive because it has become the excuse for why nothing should be done. We move forward in time from, from Thomas Jefferson into the period of the Civil War and we find, you know, Lerone Bennett has just written a book about Lincoln never freed the slaves, but of course he never freed the slaves. We see in the Emancipation Proclamation where he's talking about, uh, I am freeing the slaves in the seceding states. Well, first of all, he could not free the slaves in the seceding states because the states had seceded, so he had no more authority over the seceding states or their slaves at that, at that time. But Lincoln tells you in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, I am a white man, I know of the superior, I certainly know that the black is inferior to me. He tells it in a letter to Horace Greeley, he says, I want to make it clear this war is not about slavery, it's about saving this union. What really was about northern industrialization and the differences between the southern planter and uh, the move from agrarianism to industrialization as we are moving today from industrialization to high technological production and so forth which is why everybody's confused like what kind of job should I get by the time you figure out what your job is high tech has wiped it out you know <laughs> used to be a time people want to work in the steel mill nobody in this room probably could imagine thinking of working in the steel mill and yet people used to think it was a great job, but now it's not important. 
uh, because high technology has allowed us to produce more and more product, which is, of course, the nature of a market economy, to produce more, sell more. In order to sell more, you've got to open more markets, as it said. You know how we think of countries now as markets, you know. We don't speak about going into this country. We think about opening this market, you know, because that's the, that's the nature of this country. But as for blacks, the whole war... Uh, was fought between the differences, as, 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 as Douglas himself said in the, in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, this is a country created by white men for the interests of white men, and the, slave, the question of slavery will be decided by white men. The administration of this country will be decided by white men, and white men only. So the question is, the war ends, and nevertheless, the question of slavery does, does involve itself or in, 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 uh, becomes a part of the, the, the resolution of the war and the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery is passed. And what? What did it mean? Well, of course, we have General Sherman giving out Field Order Number 15 saying, look, you just can't release these 11 million people into the world with nothing. They've been here 250 years with nothing, remember? Not even a name, not even a religion, not a dance, not a piece of clothing. Nothing do they own, not even their own bodies. You cannot have this group of people just send them out. Of course, Lincoln had the idea to send us to Hispaniola, but then he was just too cheap to even put that action in. You know, many people talk about the colonization of the black, sending blacks away from uh, America now that uh, there was no more need for our labor uh, in the light of the new industrialization and the machinery and so forth and massive production. And so at the same time, the 13th Amendment, we know we have the black codes in the South, uh, coming up, and the black codes pertain to black people. It said, you know, black people can't stand here, can't do that, can't do this. You know, vagrancy was a big one. You had to have a job. You know, if you didn't have a job, you go to jail. And then you went to jail, you became convict labor, kind of like today. Convict labor. See what I'm saying? So, uh, and building railroads in Georgia and all these other places. And so the question was what to do with these black people that now that they no longer are useful as uh, slave laborers. Uh, and, and, and the answer was nothing. Uh, Sherman tried to give 40 acres of tillable land to each slave family along the uh, south, southeastern coast of America, uh, or the United States rather, uh, 30 miles in. But uh, the minute he issued that field order, and many, many blacks did go and start occupying some of those places, uh, Andrew Johnson said, you better get out by Christmas because I'm sending in an army, and that's over. That's the last time we talked about 40 acres except for some of us who are still around here dreaming about 40 acres. But black people, uh, therefore, had no real stake in America, didn't really belong here, and really couldn't get back anywhere else because there wasn't anywhere else to go back to. Now, you have to know that that was 1865. And from 1865 to 1896, we know nothing really happened except rise of the Ku Klux Klan, further uh, blacks going back to sharecropping, meaning back to slavery, this back to agrarian life, and so forth and so on. And by 1896, of course, we had the famous case of Plessy versus Ferguson, where Plessy, you know, Plessy was a light-skinned black. And many people, like myself, think Plessy was trying to, well, trying to pass, maybe. Got on, the, got on the train and thought nobody would notice that he was black in Louisiana. And at the time, they had a separation of the cars. Black sat in one car, white sat in another. And Plessy sat in a white car. And somebody spotted him, I guess, and said, Plessy, you had to go back with the rest of the black people. He's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm a citizen now, I'm not a slave. And the Supreme Court ultimately decided, said, wait a minute, wait a minute, sitting on the train is not a citizenship right. Sort of like getting an education is not a citizenship right. Sort of like getting a job is not a citizenship. These are private issues. Why should I be forced to give up my train, my nice train, to one of these ex-slaves, light-skinned though he might be? And the court said, you shouldn't be. 
you know, as long as the, this is not an issue of civil rights, this is an issue of your, not your rights as a citizen, this is a private issue and you, Plessy, will, as long as you are given equal accommodations for the same price, they can be separate. And of course we have the inculcation, therefore, of American apartheid or Jim Crow. And so then blacks spent the rest of the next 40 or so years trying to figure out how to get around apartheid or Jim Crow, just to get a job, just to go have health care, just to get food, just to have housing, just to get an education, just to get around Jim Crow. Because see, the deal with Jim Crow is if I own everything and I don't want to give it to you, what does equal, separate but equal mean? <laughs> Nothing, you know? And that's what happened. Blacks didn't own the train, so if you don't own the train and the other people own the train, they tell you they're going to give you equal accommodation, you have to hope they will. It has to be by benevolence. And people were not very benevolent. And so blacks spent all those, we spent all those years arguing about how we were going to manage our lives now that we got the drill. We have Booker T. Washington saying, look, I don't care about being socially integrated with you. I'm happy being separate from you. Just give me a couple million dollars every so often and I will have my own little independent economy and evolve and develop my own little world and I won't even bother you. Which Marcus Garvey took to another level because Marcus Garvey, of course, was an admirer of Booker T. Washington, which a lot of people don't realize, and then talked about the independent economy later on. In the meantime, we had Du Bois talking about we've got to integrate, we've got to become citizens, that's important for us, we've got to become full partners in America. And at the end of his life saying, you know, we've spent so much time trying to integrate into America and we never asked ourselves what being an American was. And so we spent the rest of that time just really trying to get a job, get health care, you know, people dying, couldn't get blood, all that, all the stories that we know. Lynchings, you know, race riots, not race riots, black people, this is race riots, white people in the north, these new immigrants and so forth, all this going on. And we arrive at 1954, Brown versus Board of Education, little black children trying to go to school now, and the court says, the Supreme Court holds, you know, Plessy was wrong on the question of public education. We are overturning it and we want the schools to be integrated. And what kind of response did that get? Well, the response was, as we speak today, never enforced. People look, remember little Arthurine Lucy, the little Norman Rockwell painting with little poor little black Arthurine Lucy and all the little white and the white soldiers standing there trying to take her to school. And we've got a thousand of those images in our heads where we know black children trying to get an education, despite what some people think about what blacks think about education. We bled for education. We died for education. We fought to be educated just to get into school. And even that wasn't enough and still has not been enforced and in fact has been overturned as affirmative action in public schools and in, in these colleges uh, has been uh, overturned. So what do you do? Well, you're at 1954. And so in 1955, we have Rosa Parks in this dynamic moment in history. And what made it more dynamic, of course, was the advent of television, or the, that is to say the production of mass production of television after World War II. All the little benefits of World War II that came to this country, which is why the defense budget is so very important today, because the entire country is built on uh, war budgets and warfare. And so you have a situation where Rosa Parks is just like Plessy, really. She's like, you know, I paid the same price. I want to sit on the bus. Can you imagine that we are in 1955 talking about sitting on the bus? Just to pay. Meanwhile, you can't drink out the water fountain, can't go to the all these things, can't rent property, you have de facto uh, segregation in the North, de, de jure segregation in the South, all the same thing. Fighting for the right to get a seat on the bus. This is incredible when you really think about it. 
And of course, with television images shooting those pictures around the world of little children trying to get educated, of people saying, I want to sit on a bus and can't because they have the same, even though they have the same price, you know, America became shamed into having to address this issue. Finally, 1963, we have the great march on Washington led by Dr. King, who is truly the moral voice of America and the moral voice of black people, bringing everybody to their knees and recognizing exactly what we need to, to, to deal with in this country. And finally, we get 64 and 65 civil rights legislation by which from 1865 to 1965, we find that we can finally pee in the same toilets with white people drink out of the same water fountains, and sit in the same seat on a bus. That was the 100 years. Really, wasn't very much, was it? A long road for not too much. We don't, didn't own So we're now already in 1965. Now everybody in this room is just about getting ready to be born or has been born. Think about it. 1965, all we're talking about is, hallelujah, we can use public accommodations. We ain't got no money to go to the hotel, but if we ever get any money on a job, but now job, this is a private issue also. Why should we give blacks extra special attention or extra special uh, care in getting a job? I worked hard. I went to school. I shouldn't have to give up my job. These affirmative action programs are horrible. This is, this is the tenor of the country. But in the meantime, during that period, and this leads us to the Black Panther Party, in the meantime, during that period, we have... Uh, young blacks, because the whole black uh, community has shifted from the, from the south basically to the north because of the war, because of the war of Oakland, the creation of uh, Kaiser, uh, Henry Kaiser and the whole Kaiser family uh, for the so-called war effort. Uh, you know, Chicago, the great migration to Chicago and all these other things. Black people looking for jobs, running from Ku Klux Klans, running from lynchings and so forth, ended up mostly in the northern ghettos of America or creating or being cordoned off into the northern ghettos of America, trying to find jobs in the industrial north, having nothing to do anymore in the south. And so we have a situation where young blacks, having come out of the north, living in the north, having seen the civil rights uh, efforts and the whole nonviolence uh, 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 program, uh, saying, you know, and then and we have a whole group of people, young people from SNCC, uh, so, uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, others saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, we want more than civil rights. We want, we want everything. We want power over our life. We want black power. We didn't know what black power meant, but it sounded good. And so we wanted it. We didn't know exactly how it was going to come, but we wanted it. And so out of that spirit, at the same time swirling around us the Vietnam War having, been, having begun, and young whites in schools like this saying, wait a minute now, I didn't know Billy Bob was going to go over there and be killing some innocent Vietnamese woman. That's not what I thought. I thought war was John Wayne. You know, I thought it was a great, glorious, wonderful thing where you just came back and got in a parade. You, you know, you killed bad people. I didn't know you were going to kill innocent people in Vietnam. And so young whites were starting to question the government that was their government as young blacks were becoming enraged, such as in Los Angeles at the same time, the Gulf, the same time, pardon me, the Gulf of Tonkin, the invasion of the Gulf of Tonkin in uh, beginning the Vietnam War in 65. You had the case of Leonard Detweiler in Los Angeles who was sort of the Rodney King uh, incident of that time in which he was shot by the police and blacks said, that's it, we're tired. That was the shot that rang around the world because uh, blacks in Watson in Southern California rose up like a mighty tide in an uprising that no one had ever seen blacks uh, do in the past. 
And of course, then there were studies like, what's the problem? Are you angry? <laughs> they had this Kerner, Kerner Commission report that came out and said, you know what's wrong here? Why these blacks are so angry? You know, America is really two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. And so people began to study the problem, and Johnson began to pass out money to, to the hood and tell everybody who had any thought in their head, he has some money, just be quiet, support my war, and so forth. And then we get Dr. King making that a terrible statement, denouncing Johnson's war. And in the midst of all this came the Black Panther Party. And the Black Panther Party formed in Oakland in 1966 said, you know, we got to talk about human rights. We got to talk about black liberation, total liberation. What does it mean? It means we want land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace. And that we cannot find that liberation in the country as it exists. We will have to change the basic scheme in this country. Revolution is the only manner in which this country will be able to embrace the notion of the complete freedom and liberation of black people. But wait a minute, we thought, how can we talk about our freedom in the context of the oppression of other people. So we can't. What about the native people, our only allies and friends when we were slaves, the great chief Osceola of the Seminole Nation, uh, who, who hid us and fought a war for seven years and never gave up and never signed a treaty, and all the other great uh, native peoples who supported us and hid us and embraced us. We can't be free if the native people are going to be oppressed, so their struggle is our struggle. But what about the Chicanos in the fields of Southern Cal of California? Our friend Cesar Chavez, who was a very close friend of the Black Panther Party, and all the others that we knew who were in the barrios of Los Angeles. How can we talk about our freedom if we're not talking about the freedom of the Chicano people? who used to call themselves Spanish until they decided to go ahead and come on home like black people did. You know, used to be Negroes, became black, used to be Spanish. No, I'm a Mexican, a Chicano, I'm proud of that. And we formed a coalition with and helped to initiate the Brown Berets in Southern California. And how can we be free if the Puerto Ricans are languishing in the sweatshops of New York? And so we organized with the young lords and became and said that their freedom is our freedom. And how can we be free if the Chinese people driven to the West Coast like dogs are not free in America? We can't be. So we formed a coalition with the Red Garden. How can we be free if poor whites are living in Appalachia like dogs and never got to drill that we were never their enemy? We can't be, so we formed a coalition with the White Patriot Party, not to be confused with SDS intellectuals on the campus, White Patriot Party armed young whites talking about the same agenda that we had, revolutionary change in America. How can we be free if women in this country were living like dogs and less than human beings? So we said that the question of women's liberation was our liberation. How can we be free when gay people are oppressed in this country? We said gay liberation was our liberation. And we set the agenda and the goal and the vision that was truly inclusive. It wasn't multicultural, it was inclusive because we understood that our liberation had to come with the liberation of all human beings who were oppressed and alienated and otherwise ostracized in this society. But the society would have to change. You know, capitalism really had to go. We can't have one guy owning as much as 100 million people. We really know one human being is really not worth 100 million people. We wanted to change the paradigm. And very much like Dr. King did. Because, you know, some people say that Dr. King at the end of his life was sort of talking like a Black Panther. And in 1968, he was. He wasn't about the Memphis garbage strike. Now, anybody who really, really seriously thinks that James Earl Ray 
you know, figured out how to kill. He might have hated Dr. King. I don't know who knows, but because he's dead now. But the bottom line was, I mean, it was just a, such a phenomenon that some one guy who couldn't even pass the target shooting test in the army figured out how to become a marksman, you know, standing, uh, I don't know how many feet away and figuring out that King would come out of the balcony and knowing when to shoot and with one bullet felling this incredible, it was incredible to me. And it should be incredible to all of us. So as we talk about King today, it's such a, it's such a terrible thing we talk about. Oh, uh, one thing we always want to remember, and you know, America likes to remind black people, especially, you know, he was nonviolent. He was nonviolent. <laughs> Dr. King was, if nothing else, remember this black people, Nonviolent. <laughs> now he had a dream, we're not sure what the dream was, okay? And we're gonna mess with the dream, Wardell Connerly, bastardizing King's words, all these races all up and down this, in this country, just using King's word. Well, he had some kind of dream, we don't know what the dream was, but he was definitely nonviolent, and always keep that in mind. Even though he himself said in 1967, after the Detroit uprising and so many others before, he said, look, how can I tell these young blacks in urban America to stop throwing Molotov cocktails on this country out of rage? How can I talk to them about the nonviolent resolution of conflict when the very country would send them to resolve conflict with violence with some innocent people in Vietnam only to come back home and be oppressed in their own country. No, I can't and I will not. Says that, We've, we erased that from the books. But in 1968, what was Dr. King doing? He was organizing the Poor People's Campaign. This was not about the Memphis garbage strike, this was about the Poor People's Campaign. What was the Poor People's Campaign about? Poor People's Campaign was, he tells us in words, in written words, it's on film everywhere, he says, look, in 63, we talked about the check hadn't been cashed, and in 68, we're going, to cash, we're going to Washington to cash the check, and we're not leaving until it's cashed. Now, what does that mean? We're talking about reparations for blacks. We're talking about guaranteed income for all people in this country. We're talking about universal health care for everyone. These are words that he said. This wasn't some dream or fantasy. They were very concrete issues, and worse, redistribution of wealth. We forgot that stuff, mainly because it's been written out. <laughs> so... That vision of his, of ours, <clears throat> was lost, especially when he was, when that bullet uh, entered his uh, brain and took his life, because that left a gaping hole not only in the blacks of this country, but also in this entire country. So we slid, we've been backsliding quite a bit uh, since then. And we are right back to where we start. Why are blacks poor? What's the problem? The problem is a failure of will and a failure of commitment to really talk about a country and make the country live up to the commitment that Thomas Jefferson gave lip service to, and that, that of course, being a life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and those kinds of ideals. So what the Black Panther Party attempted to do, and, and, and what that history, if, I hope you'll ask me some questions about it because I'm going to close in a minute, but the, what that history gives us is an opportunity to look back at a vision and what, what happened to it and where do we want to go in this country? Do we really want to be uh, so divided along these lines, but more importantly, do we, do we black people and other poor people want to be equal? Do we want to be, have the right to beat up Rodney King? Is that what we want to do, have the equal right to be? We want to be Colin Powell killing 400,000 people in Iraq in the name of oil interests, and specifically George Bush's oil interests? Is that who we really want to be? Do we want to have the World Bank own the entire continent of Africa, with the exception of the South African diamond mines and, and other things in South Africa owned by De Beers and Oppenheim and all these people? 
Do we really want to oppress people throughout the entire world? Do we really want to see MTV introduce all this new stuff? So, we, you know, it comes on MTV, BET, it shoots down all throughout the third world and everything. People start thinking they're deprived, they don't have Coca-Cola and McDonald's, you know, like the Elian Gonzalez kitchen. People say, oh, it's so horrible in, in Cuba. He can never go to Disneyland, <laughs> you know? It's just so horrible, he's gonna have to go back where there's no Disneyland, except there's a high literacy rate, a low infant mortality rate, and one of the best, uh, uh, education systems in the Western Hemisphere and so forth. But yes, there is no Disneyland. And uh, so we have to get back to a vision of who we are. And that, I think, is the memory of what Black History Month ought to do for us. And not let us get sidetracked into these little special cases of these entertaining Negroes, which is what I call them, uh, because they really don't have any other role to play other than the same, same role that uh, slaves had many, many years ago, which was to entertain. And so, in closing, I, I just say this. Uh, in, in looking over the history of the Black Panther Party in that whole period of the 60s, and looking over the history of black people in America, let's really take a look at it and let's decide, does it mean anything contemporaneously? And I believe that it does. It means that we have some issues here. We have serious, massive problems, certainly black, certainly Latinos, certainly other people of color and women and so forth. And let us get back not to just celebrating ourselves and our diversity and all that. Let's talk about how we're going to use our, our common ground and our interest toward uh, making a revolutionary change in America so there can be a, a land of uh, liberty, not only here, but uh, one that offers a place of, uh, for liberty for truly uh, throughout, the entire, uh, throughout the entire world. Thanks a lot. Oh, good. Somebody's asking a question. Go ahead. Um, I want to start off by thanking you for coming out here tonight. I really appreciate it. it was, uh, I enjoyed listening to you speak. So then also I want to say that um, I believe in, I'm sure you agree that the education system is one of the most important aspects of uh, basically bettering our society. And right now we're struggling with like funding and all, all kinds of other problems. What what would you say, uh, how would you recommend that we could uh, begin making progress towards the ideal edu education system, like say within the next 30 years? And right now, we're, like I mentioned, the, like LA Unified uh, School District, for example, it's allocated like $14,000 per student there. And obviously some of that, right now, like uh, people like Condi Rice, um, are trying to allocate, or I mean, trying to audit that money and seeing where all of it's going, and a lot of it's getting wasted. How how can we improve that too? So. Well, you know, I, I appreciate your question because I am trying to create a school, a model school in uh, Atlanta that can be used as a, a public, you know, a center for my, a public education. I mean, any humane society has got to say, well, gee, we want to continue ourselves and we want to elevate ourselves and we certainly want to educate our children. So I don't think, I'm not sure that L.A. is spending $14,000 a year uh, per yeah. child. I doubt that. It might be a little bit of a variable statistic, but that's, according to uh, Condi Rice, that's... That's what You're talking said. about Condoleezza Rice? No, Condi Rice, her cousin. Who is that? Her, her Condoleezza Rice. Yeah, she has a cousin named, named Condi. Condi? Rice. Is, yeah, she's. Don't let she's, me go there with that language. Go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry. I, uh, <laughs> no, I'm talking about the alliteration of those words, but go ahead. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm sorry about that. No, it's not your fault. I, I actually didn't know who she was. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, she, so right now she's. Um, 
got an organization together and they're trying to audit all the money that's going into and out of LA Unified School District. Well, I'm sure it's not 14,000 a year, but and if it is, we really don't know where it's being spent, do we? Right. But because I can true. tell you that Phillips Speak. Exeter, for example, uh, which I like to use as a model because Phillips Exeter is one of those nice schools, you know, where the masters of the universe get educated, and there's only 13,000 a year at tuition. Uh, right. But the point is, first of all we have to come to reckon with the fact that public education didn't start out as a right and it never has been a right under the United States Constitution. Public education started out to educate, to train industrial workers, basically. There were a few people who had a little elite education, a little private operations, you know, and then ended up at Harvard, you know, and so forth. But the bottom line was public education was how to recognize the 9 o'clock bell, the 12 o'clock bell, and the 5 o'clock bell, and put your widgets in, in between, sit up at your desk, which raise your hand, all that stuff goes to, you know, how how you then become trained to become an industrial worker. So there was never any commitment to mass education in this country. So the first thing has to happen is some kind of public policy, but that's not going to happen by, you know, legislating. I mean, I'm working for legislation, but, you know, I know that in the end of the day, that's not where the deal is. You have actions, you know, as Che Guevara said, and we all, I always like to quote Che Guevara because he is not only revolutionary but a poet, I always like to say, you know, words of beautiful actions are supreme. And the bottom line is you have, you pay money to go to school in, in America if you go to higher, so-called higher education. All higher education should be free in America. So that's mm -hmm. the first thing. We got this slogan in our head. Just fighting, I, I just, this is not too far afield, but I, I've had a lot of young guys up until now ask me, uh, well, don't you think it's unfair affirmative action? You know, young white guy works hard, family working hard, watch some young black get a lower SAT score, and he takes that slot. And I always tell them that's not the problem. The problem is you don't have $35,000, because if you had $35,000, you wouldn't be down here with me trying to figure out how to get into some free right. school, some cheap school, the way uh, Baki did back at UC Davis. What you'd be doing, going to Harvard like George Bush, or Yale like George Bush did. You'd have $35,000, you can go anywhere in the country for education. So education can be bought, is my point. Mm -hmm. We need to have a system, obviously. But I always remind people that whatever things we're talking about, whatever particulars, like education, and I'm dealing with education, like prisons, and I'm dealing with prison. This is all reform conversation. You're trying to, you know, match up. It's like, you know, matching up. You're, you're in, you're in a, a situation that is, that is untenable, but you want to just have some little Band-Aid on it. And that's all that's going to be. But bottom line, of course, education should be free to everyone. That's the first thing. I can't deal with the particular details of that, but I would say that it's up to the people who live in this community and other communities to decide that we don't want to, to have this, but you can't, we can't have even gotten by the Rodney King uprising. Remember when they was going, we were going to heal the country with money, remember that program? Mm -hmm. And it's like five black people made some money, and we don't even know what happened. Peter Uberoff took over some, con some company or whatever that was, and some crazy thing happened, we don't remember what happened after Rodney King, remember that? We don't even yeah. remember Rodney King, hard. we can hardly remember Rodney King. So what I'm saying is, I don't have some one panacea answer for how do we get to a decent educational system. But we have to first, among ourselves, who will have some kind of active concern about these things, make some decision to move on that situation, especially you young people. Because some of us are not only old, but we're tired. And so, because we are old. And so you have to make some decision. Now, what is it that you want to do? How can that be effective? Uh, you know, I told you when I was here the last time what happened, so I'm not suggesting that, uh, <laughs> You know, because it didn't work, mainly, you know. It, uh, it was a bad, you know, it was a bad situation. You always had to be practical, you know. You know, I always say you have to live to fight another day, and that's the deal with that. But the bottom line on education is, yes, 
education should be free. It should be great. I think public education teachers should be, elementary school teachers should be, have a starting salary of $100,000 a year, minimum, right now, right now. What's that about? How much money do you spend in the state of California to keep a kid in prison? Yeah, it's, it's very expensive. Forty-some thousand a year? <laughs> I mean, you, you, you want to make a half, not you, you know what I mean? We want to make a half a committee. No, we have to put money. Somebody asked, you know who Jonathan Kozol is? He's a friend of mine. He's a great writer. And uh, John, somebody asked Jonathan Kozol, says, you're one of these white liberals that thinks if you keep putting money into things, it's going to get better. Uh, you think you're going to keep pouring money into public education, it's going to get better? And he says, well, do give me the money and let me see, <laughs> you know. So I say the same thing. Let's put some tax money. But you, remember, you're talking about a state that passed Proposition 209. You're talking about a state where black people in this state supported 187, talking about Mexicans want our jobs. This is from Negroes who hadn't had a job since 1972. You know, talking about somebody's taking your job. You ain't had a job. You don't have a job. And nobody's taking your job. That's how they divided us had black people turning on Mexicans, talking about, I support 187. Black people voting for 209. Thought there was affirmative, <laughs> they didn't even understand what the question was, much less the answer. It's a fact. You have to educate people in order to do something. So if you want to do something, my suggestion is start a school, start a program, or move on Condi Rice, whatever her name is, and, uh, <laughs> and, and say, we're down here, we're not going to let you rest. Have a little protest. You know, the battle in Seattle, I loved it. People said, oh, don't you think it was ridiculous? No. I didn't care. Stare something up. As Bungie Carter said, do something if you only spit. But do something. So I don't have the answer, but I'm telling you that the commitment will deliver the answer to you. Yeah, so start Okay, I'm going to take some other questions. Huh? Oh, so start higher education. And then Starting, the in, for me, elementary school is important. This is where poor children are living, uh, getting no education, 30-some children in class, poor classroom, no money, blah, blah, blah. So I don't know where, how you're going to find the money, but I'm saying the way to do it is to, to move on some type of mass operation. I see. Thank I'll you for your next, time. Thank okay, you thank time. you. I'm sorry. Good evening, sister. Good evening. Um, you brought up the point about um, reparations, and you, I'd hope that someone would ask about that. Oh, I'm and, hoping. And, uh, and so I'm, I guess I'm opening the floor to that. Oh, goody. I, I guess with, particularly with the uh, precedents that, that has been laid down with uh, Japanese Americans who were imprisoned in right. reparations, and obviously with uh, the Jewish community who have right. gotten reparations right. from the banks in, in Europe. So, but I'm, I'm, a little bit, I'm, I'm a little bit of a skeptic because I just don't think that that could happen here, especially yeah. with the black community. But I wanted to, to open the open Well, we up. know that the benevolence question is, is enough to make all of us skeptical. We know this is not going to come from anything. But the first principle for me is reparations are absolutely required. There is no getting around it. You know stuff about reconciliation. You know this Bishop Tutu coming over here talking about some reconciliation. He'd be ashamed of himself to come here and say anything about it because it was a disgrace that they had that whole reconciliation thing in South Africa, putting Winnie Mandela on trial. They should have been ashamed. But that's just my you know personal opinion about that. But uh, the question of reparations is important for two big reasons. One is we need money. We black people need money. We don't have anything. I'm telling you, we're still looking for 40 acres. We own nothing. We control nothing. You must have some kind of control over the things that affect your life. Unless we're going to dismantle the entire society, which, of course, I'm ultimately in favor of, and create a new egalitarian society, you know. But in the meantime, we need something to tide us over. You know what I'm saying? See, I'm ready to take a welfare check again. You know, I will take affirmative action and welfare checks. I'm taking all this a down payment on what is due. Now, it's not just due morally, so we don't have to make that argument. I feel as though there's no argument that's going to ever make everybody happy. 
The bottom line is, you're right. There's plenty of precedent. It's not even a radical idea. And it's not just the Jews. The Germans at least acknowledged a crime existed officially. Whether they believe it or not, there's plenty of Nazis running around Germany today. But the bottom line is the German government acknowledged the crime of the Holocaust. This country won't even acknowledge the crime, the Holocaust, the crime of slavery. Here's Clinton talking about, it was too long ago, so I just can't apologize. Clinton, who many Negroes thought was their president. You know, actually, Chris Rock talking about he's the first black president. And that's just one thing I have to say about Chris Rock, but that's also something else. <laughs> but the bottom line is that, yes, we have, to have, we have to force the issue of reparations onto the American social dialogue. Why? Because in the end of the day, everybody will be healed from it. Not only in the question of money, what I do want the money, as I mentioned earlier, and I keep mentioning, I truly am looking for 30 million per descendant. Now, whether we get it individually, people say, well, if you give it to some people, they'll just burn it up. Give it to me. <laughs> Let him burn his up to give me my 30, okay? Or we can have it collectively. I don't care. The issue has to be on the table. John Conyers attempts to raise this issue every single year. Not get reparations, just have hearings on reparations, dialogue about reparations. Uh, uh, the House Representative, uh, Congressman John Conyers. And do you even see the Congressional Black Caucus backing that up? Where are they? Have you heard anything about that? No. You know why? Because they haven't said anything. They're just sitting there talking about Clinton, worrying about Clinton and Monica, you know, as, as Malcolm X said, master, master, our house on fire, you know. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> We're going to surround our president. We love our president. But we're not going to talk about reparations. We're not going to talk about contras and cocaine and all that stuff. So reparations is an important issue because it drives, for, it forces the issue to, to, into discussion. We have to all acknowledge there was a crime that was committed here, a terrible, immoral, inhumane thing that happened. Nobody's asking anybody to take money out their pocket. There's plenty of defense money for reparations money. There's billions of money going to McDonnell Douglas and Boeing and all those other corporate welfare recipients. That money, there's, there's plenty of money for reparations, so it's not even an issue. You know, people are like, where is it going to come from? I don't have to pay it. Like the whole affirmative action. Nobody's asking you to pay it. And you know you ain't got no money because you're down here arguing with me. <laughs> Bill Gates isn't sitting here worrying about this. <laughs> you know, I know you don't have any money. <laughs> but I know you pay taxes, and we all do. And so all the tax money, instead of, you know, there's a commitment. But I think blacks have to force this issue because it makes everybody reckon with what really did happen in this country and say, yes, this is the shame of this country. But the only way to heal it is we're going to come to grips with it, and we're going we're to make ourselves whole. And in law, we know that one way you, to make yourself whole is money. It's a legal remedy. It's only natural. Whether we get it to the courts, we won't get it to the courts. That's ridiculous. It's like a joke. It's like the Rodney King case. Remember that? Like we go to the court to say these guys did the wrong thing. These cops, right? It's like going to master, talking about the overseer gave me too many lashes. Master said, well, what do you think I hired the overseer to do? Give you lashes. Don't come to me. I'm the one that told him to do it. I'm the court. I'm the government. I just told the police to beat up Rodney King. So why are you coming to me asking me, so we, why are we still looking for justice in the courts of America? It's always shocking to me. It's like, is there any clue here that the courts are not operating in your favor? They've dismantled every single thing that had served our interests. So we have, to, we have to move on that. You've got in Cobra, you've got Randall Robinson out there, you've got groups of blacks now, even mainstream blacks, 
talking about reparations, and I think that movement is, 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 is about to happen, and I think that everybody black has to support that, and everybody else has to support it. There must be money. We have to get started again. We need the 40 acres, truly. And I, I'm not skeptical, because I'm not looking for them to give us anything. Um, I'm saying that we've got to make that demand, because I think it will galvanize black people. You know, people that just got one drop of black blood are going to be going taking DNA tests, trying to find that drop. If you get talking about $30 million per, per descendant, you know what I mean? Everybody will come on back home. Believe me when I tell you. All those a- intellectuals and academics who left talking about the ghetto is not their home and anything, they'll all be back home. Everybody will be black. I think we'll have a tremendous healing power. It's a big issue, and underneath it we can discuss a million things, but we at least will be going toward payment of reparations, and I do believe it has to be concretized in real money, in terms of real things, and how it gets done. Let's talk about it, but let's put some money on the table, and then we'll talk about it. But I'm absolutely, I think it's critical, barring revolution, uh, and since that's not going to happen tomorrow either, let's at least get some money to begin to build our community and, our, and ourselves. We don't even have health care. I mean, we are talking about black male prostate, men dying of prostate cancer. And you know what people tell you? This is because you don't have early examinations. <laughs> it's like, why do black women die of breast cancer? We don't have early examinations. We don't go to the gynecologist enough. Well, we have some kind of culture. You've heard that before? We have cultural problems with going to the doctor. No, no, it's about money. You know, I had a pap smear the other day, $185. I have $185 to pay, even though I didn't want to pay it, plus the $49 for the report. <laughs> you know what I'm talking Anybody's had a pap smear, well, some of you, most of you are too young, but the older women here know what I'm talking about. You know, and so what's the point? Mammogram, 200 and some dollars. I am not talking about I don't get health care because I don't have made some critical choices. I don't do it because I ain't got the money. It's like, do I feed my children or do I get a pap smear? It's not a very difficult. So we need money for our health. We need money to have, um, you know, have medical care. We need money for, we've got AIDS, we've got crack cocaine, these instant, these emergency problems. We need some actual resources. When I say money, we need resources to address that. And I think that reparations presents, you know, a kind of, of, of solution both psychologically. And the other thing we'll do is to make black people who are really, you know, a lot of black people don't want to talk about slavery. It's like, well, you know, why do we have to keep talking about it? Because we're, it is, I don't know what that, I have never understood the reasoning behind that. But I think that will get us back to talking about that we are a people and that this, this terrible thing happened to us. And these, we are wounded from it. We've been wounded from slavery. We're still wounded from it. We hate ourselves, don't like our color, don't like this, you know, don't like this one. And all of this comes from, you know, from that experience. And the, the reparations concept will trigger, I think, real dialogue on race and will heal all of us in, in, in many ways. That's why I'm for it. And, yeah, it might not work, but let's at least, let's start talking about the money. And then we'll, plus, doesn't it sound good? Doesn't $30 million sound good to you? Sound great to me. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll take the next step. <laughs> sure, what's the matter? Okay, well, there's a couple people lined up, so let's just keep the who's there. I can answer faster. All right, yeah. I wanted to ask you a more personal question. As an activist, how do you... I personally am feeling overwhelmed, like, trying to deal with, like, you know, the Chicana, the Latina movement, trying to deal with the queer movement, trying to build coalitions. Like, how do you personally, like not necessarily prioritize, but deal with all of those things and fight for what you believe in without having to sacrifice like parts of yourself. 
Well, you know, I did in the Black Panther Party, you know, uh, you know, and I lived on the floors and all that stuff. And we found out that really it doesn't inspire you one way or the other. You know, it's much better to have a bed, you know. So our goal was to elevate everybody, not to lower, you know, to bring everybody up, not everybody down, you know, to the common denominator being the up denominator, right? But, uh, well, it's not, there's no how. I mean, you can't make people do anything. All you can do is what we said and what I believe today is to, you have to serve the people body and soul. You can't worry about convincing them and thinking your idea is so great because we thought we were so great in the Black Panther Party. You know, we're the revolutionary vanguard. You know, we say power to the people and uh, Panther power to the vanguard, you know. And we set ourselves up as being, uh, we were rather arrogant in many ways. And we had to be self-critical about that. And some people weren't able to be self-critical about it. Um, but we have to be able to recognize that just because you think it's a great idea doesn't mean everybody else does, you know, and just because we know we probably are right in the end of the day doesn't mean everybody's going to come, and, and you're not going to get them kicking, coming, bring their, kicking the screen, what, you're going to put a gun in their head and say, I'm insisting that you fight for your own freedom? No. The way we did it, we began to regroup in, in the Black Panther Party, and what I'm doing now with this school is I'm starting all over again from scratch, serving the people, doing things, organizing people around their interests, and that's something we can do. If you want, I mean, it's a disgrace to be talking about farm workers today. This, we should be over this issue, but we're still talking about civil rights, too. So, you know, I look at the farm. Listen, I was just in, in uh, where was I, in, in Nevada, in Omaha. And there's like this huge Chicano farm working community in Omaha. Like, who would have thought that one? Because, like, where, you know, how did it all happen? Um, and, and I was talking to a young sister who uh, grew up as a farm worker, a child of farm worker, you know, was out there with her parents picking, you know, so forth and so on. I mean, this has got to stop. So what are you going to do about it? Well, in order for these people to recognize that they have really the right to be uh, something more than that, you've got to start from the beginning again. That is, you've got to start going out into the, you know, you've got to do the Cesar Chavez, you know, and you've got to do, you've got to do all the hard work. And, and it isn't fun, and you can't convince people. And you might not get ten people in the school to agree with you, but you just have to do it yourself. The Black Panther Party was started by two or three guys, you know, Bobby Seale, Huey Newton, and, you know, and David Hilliard and others. And that's it. And so you just have to hunker on down. It ain't easy. It's not glorious and it's not wonderful. I mean, I'm writing books, making these little speeches to keep myself, you know, going. And meantime, I'm trying to raise money for this school. Meantime, I'm trying to get this kid out of prison um, and, uh, and a bunch of other kids out of prison. And, uh, and, and what will it all do? In the end of the day, I mean, if I get him out of prison, what have I won? Nothing. You know, even if you free Mumia tomorrow, uh, you know, Mumia walks out in what? Been down for what? How long? We got right here in California, Romaine Chip Fitzgerald, a member of the Black Panther Party, been in prison 32 years. What difference is going to make now? We were trying to get him out. Gray Davis uh, rejects all that, but I'm saying um, it's hard and it's disheartening, and that's what you're talking about, the despair of it. The only thing you can do and the only thing I do is I look at children and I just say, i got to do it because otherwise, I, what do I leave them? A continuum of this crap. I mean, I went to Michael Lewis, Lil B, this kid I write about in my book, and I said, you know, if you're wondering why I'm here, I'm here to ask your forgiveness. I didn't mean to leave the world like this for you, but it happened, didn't it? So all I can do is get back to the program, but maybe I won't do it the same way. Now you have the internet, now you have a lot of other resources that we didn't have, different paradigm, different, you know, different situations. So just take heart that it's either this or what? fall back into the, into the scheme of things and, and just get a job at Coca-Cola. I mean, you'll go on because that's what you do. And you just have to encourage yourself and maybe sometimes take time off and 
you know, take a vacation. I mean, I'm serious. You, uh, we never thought about that in the Black Panther. We, you know, we had this dream of revolutionaries, you know, but uh, we may have to change that, uh, that too. And so you'll be fine. You'll, you'll just do your work, and those who will come will come, and those who won't, you know, might have to come on the next shift, you know, and th that's all right too. Because look, I'm much older than you are. You know, I'm, I'm so old. I'm ashamed to talk about my age, you know. But um, uh, here I am. I'm still angry and crazy and, uh, you know, and I, I run around the hood all day long in Atlanta, um, you know, with all kinds of kids that I work with and some of them are dope dealers and all kinds of other stuff. And I look at how sad that situation is. What can I do? I keep going. Is either that or what? Die. That's all. So you'll do it. That's all I can say. I don't have any great advice on that. I, yes, I'm sorry. Hello, doctor. How are you doing? Oh, what'd you call me? Doctor. Oh, I, will you give me an honorary degree so I can say so, I, so I can say I am? But anyway, I'm it would seem like you should have one by now. Doesn't it though? Yeah. But I don't. But go ahead. Um, let me start off by saying that, in my opinion, for affirmative action is patchwork, and it has been patchwork. The effects have only been marginal. Yeah. And the real effects and the real causes of reasons why underrepresented students don't go on a higher education is not because of um, the lack of affirmative action or affirmative action is due to K through 12. That's the problem. One thing I learned through um, my studies here and so forth was that um, there's a little something called property taxes that go into the schools of the area, um, of the That's surrounding right. area. So yeah. in a wealthy area, the property taxes are high because you have high homes, you have the high incomes of the families. And so those schools in those areas get the money for computers. Yeah, of course. Toilet paper in their bathrooms, yeah, materials, so forth, decent textbooks that aren't right. 10, 15 years of age. And in the urban areas you have, you can't even, the facilities are shot down, and it yeah. affect, that affects education and so forth. So the money's there, but it's not equal. That's I think right. the average of LA Unified School District, it's an average. The, each student doesn't get that. One, one student at one school might get who knows how much, maybe four or $500, another student might get eighteen, nineteen, two thousand dollars $2,000. It all depends right. no, on... you're absolutely right. It all depends on where you're from. And so that, that's just due to all this, um, just, what's, what, just what's been going on in the divisions of the classes and so forth. But my question is, shouldn't there be a way to, let's say California, for instance, that all the property taxes of the surrounding, of all the state, just put it into one pot, distribute it equally per student? Well, of course. Everywhere. Well, of course. Of course, then that goes to the total concept of total redistribution of wealth. That's right. how I feel about it. But yes, of course, every child has to be equal on, on public education. What kind of commitment do we make? And as I say, 100000 for a teacher, why aren't we spending 15000 a year, in fact, for every child in the state of California? The money is here. You're right. It's a matter of public will. It's a matter of people pushing to say, we're not going to allow you to do it. We, you know, they talk about, well, what should we do? 30 kids in the class, 12 kids in the class. Uh, the class is falling apart. You know, it's like, of course money will change it. It's either money or resources, you know, I mean, money that will out, uh, get you a better uh, environment. Children do not have a good environment in which to learn. There's no environment for learning in America. L L.A. Unified Schools is no district of Atlanta or any other, although Atlanta is one of the lowest, by the way. Uh, <laughs> so, yes, of course, they should divide it equally. But let me tell you this. That's starting with their paradigm of, of, of property taxes. You could use this as a, as, a, as a way of organizing people and saying, let's have all property tax. But let me tell you something. The people in Beverly Hills, for example, will tell you, look, why should I pay? Why can't my child have more money? I put more money into taxes. You don't pay any tax. Why should your kid get more money than my kid? And this is an argument that goes over big with people who have money. 
You see what I'm saying? So the idea would be how to effect that. But of course, you are absolutely right. We have to have an equal playing field from kindergarten, from third, from the child's three years old, two years old. That's the deal I'm doing with my little school operation, for which I just need $20 million. And uh, which, you know, which really isn't any serious amount of money, but and I plan on raising it hopefully sometime this year because I have some little prospects on that. And then build that and show that this is what you have to do. You have to create a beautiful environment and then children will learn. It's not very complicated. That's why I use Phillips Exeter. You got, you know, 35 languages being taught there. Every kind of sport is there. Beautiful environment, 12 people in the class. Everybody sitting around, it's a wonderful place. And so they say, well, they never fail. You know why? Because it's impossible to fail at Phillips Exeter. It's impossible. If you don't go to class, somebody's going to come. They got counselors for sex problems, AIDS, uh, you know, alcohol, drugs, psychological abuse problems. They got more counseling. You cannot fail at Phillips Exeter. Why can't we put these things in our school system? We got one counselor for 18,000 children, all of whom have been abused in one form or another. You know what I'm saying? So, of course, you're right. How to do it, that's another story, and that's something that you, you need to you know, to get with and go into these communities and, and, and begin to organize around uh, putting money and not this voucher uh, uh, crap of, uh, of bushes. Okay, let me move on. Thank you. Excuse me. Yes, sir. First off, I'd like to thank you. I got a cold. Uh, first off, I'd like to thank you for coming. Um, I was wondering what, if anything, would you change about your, your life in the movement? perhaps to, uh, as a blueprint for what we should do nowadays, since you said that we're actually going back to the time where Black Panther Party just came about. Yeah. Well, you know, we made many mistakes, you know, uh, some of which I've articulated in my book, and uh, many people are annoyed with me about it, you know. But, um, I, I mean, like, at the time, it's like I told one brother who said, you know, I did some terrible things, you know, uh, in life. Uh, but... Uh, but the question is, what was your intent? And our, we really had good intentions. I mean, we had sexism. People say, well, wasn't there a lot of sexism in the party? Well, of course, where do you think we got these brothers from? You know, revolutionary heaven, they just dropped down out of somewhere. They came out of the United States of America. You want to talk about sexism, let's talk about Clinton. Talk about Bush. Let's talk about the, the big boys, okay? Not talking about these guys. Like these, the, the, today, they're talking about the, you know, the rappers and, and how they talk about women so badly. Well, I think uh, eliminating welfare for poor women was about uh, calling somebody a bitch. is nothing compared to uh, how they got screwed uh, uh, by uh, this president. And it wasn't about Monica Lewinsky. It was about how he uh, abused uh, poverty, uh, uh, women. And, and so there was chauvinism and sexism as, as raw form, not this little stuff that was in the Black Panther Party. So I don't think there needs to be a whole lot of dialogue on how the party should have worked or how, I mean, you know, it should be discussed. We should get over some of it by discussing it, some of us who were in the party and other people. But I think in the end of the day, um, what we did do and what I think does, I, I have no regrets. Because that means I did something and I was a lie when I did it. I, was never, I never lied about what I was. You know what I'm saying? In other words, I made a lot of mistakes. I did a lot of things I, I probably shouldn't have done and, and, and wouldn't do if I knew now what I, if I knew then what I know now. But I think looking over the party's history, one of the things that we did is we isolated ourselves as an organization. But Huey intended to break down the organization, make it a mass organization anyway. Uh, we set ourselves out uh, in front of the people as that we were, you know, going to lead the people uh, with our great uh, works. So there, and in some cases, we thought we were actually going to be the makers of the revolution when, when in many ways we believe, we always believed that it was the masses of people that would make the revolution. So we had a certain amount of arrogance, I think, as an organization. 
um, in terms of our style and so forth. But I think the greatest thing we did was we had a commitment to our people, and our commitment was really genuine. I mean, among us, there might have been this individual, that. We're not talking about individuals. Our party was truly dedicated to the liberation of black people and all oppressed people throughout the, throughout the world, including in Africa where we had coalitions, including, you know, with, with uh, ZANU in Zimbabwe, with, uh, with uh, Frelimo in Mozambique, uh, with the IRA in Northern Ireland, and then all throughout the world and so forth. Uh, I believe we had the right vision, and I think we tried our best. Our mistakes were that we, we, uh, we, 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 we put ourselves out there in a way that wasn't a win. It wasn't going to win anything. And people, sometimes our own people became scared of us. Uh, people like, every time you move into neighborhoods, we have a police raid, you know, so forth and so on. But, so I think different organizing, if we hadn't, we were tired, we worked 24 hours a day as Panthers. Uh, I think you could manage, and as this young woman was asking earlier, I think you can manage a life and being in a struggle, even though your basic commitment must be there. It's a long haul, it's not tonight, you know, it's not we're going to click our heels together and we magically turn everything over. So I think there are many ways of struggle. We did not embrace black intellectuals, for example, the whole black middle class. Nobody, a lot of black middle class were like, we, not, we don't even want to talk about the black fans scared of us, you know. Uh, this is, so we needed to work that out. We needed to have a, a bigger organization. And I think that those were some of our mistakes. Internally, uh, I think we tried hard. Listen, we had brothers that would serve breakfast that you would never believe. People that were out there yesterday slinging, that would be today slinging dope or something, you know, were in, serving breakfast to little kids. And we had sisters who, who were armed. You know, all of us had to be trained in arms. So we tried to change the roles. We tried to recreate ourselves. We tried to create a new dynamic. We just never got around to it because we were overwhelmed by police, you know, police raids, by FBI. <laughs> infiltrations by COINTELPRO and by fatigue. So I think there, there might be a way to look at the long haul and do that and, and reading some of the archives and materials of the party. Uh, but I think that our principles were right and I embrace those principles today. If it weren't for the party, uh, my, I was transformed. I was born again to the Black Panther Party. It was my life, you know, and uh, no one was sadder than I was when, when I left and when the party fell apart. So um, I think that there are all those lessons to be taught. But today, uh, my biggest uh, advice to a lot of people is remember this, that we died. We had people like Jonathan Jackson, you know, one of the great heroes of the party, George Jackson. They, they died. They were killed. And, and I wish they were alive today. I wish Fred Hampton were alive. I wish Bunchy Carter were alive. I wish John Huggins were alive. I know that we'd be better off in this world if they were alive. I wish, I wish Malcolm X were alive. I wish uh, Dr. King were alive. So the deal would be to figure out how to, to struggle win, stay alive to struggle the next day, you know, and I think that would be one of the lessons of the party. We really put ourselves so far out there. We took such heavy blows. We lost some of the greatest heroes, and half the people, I was happy to hear somebody applaud, but a lot of people don't even know who some of these people are, because, uh, and so therefore, you know what I'm saying, so a lot was lost. So uh, I think the main thing is to, is to have the good strategies, have the kind of strategies that are appropriate for today's uh, scenario and uh, live to fight another day, and, and, but maintain the struggle, always maintain the struggle. So you don't always have to walk around, you know, you know like these uh, so-called new Black Panthers, these guys walking around with these guns on TV, you know, <laughs> TV guns. Um, you know, it's not about a gun because, lastly, I'm, and it's very important to say this because that swashbuckling image has overcome a lot of people and it overcame a lot of people in the Black Panther Party at the time. You know, they had this, until people started getting killed. You know, years ago before the Crips came into being, there was a little group called the Crips, right, uh, when the party was in town and they tried to dress in black leather like we did. We told them, you can't wear black leather, you know, because only people in the black, we just like 
that's how we were. So a bunch of Carter said, no, nobody's wearing black leather in L.A. but us, you know, and that's the end of that. And, uh, but then after uh, little, Tommy, uh, little Tommy Lewis and uh, Steve Bartholomew and Robert Lawrence, three young brothers killed uh, in, August of, uh, in August of 68 at, uh, in, uh, at Adams and Montclair, killed by the police right there in the corner, Steve Bartholomew's head blowing off his shoulders. You couldn't find anybody willing to put on no black leather because it's serious then. And that's why I'm saying we have to remember that stuff, remember what you know, we're really dealing with. When you find an Uzi at 103rd and Hickory, you know, <laughs> then you know the Uzi has been outdated. You know what I mean? Because if the Uzi has found its way through all these police selling guns on the street, because that's who sells guns on the street, is the police, uh, then you know, unless you were in the Israeli army, uh, the only way you got that Uzi is because it's become an irrelevant weapon. They got some stuff, you know, in the Gulf War, they're using shooting a thousand rounds a minute, you know, outdating the 30 round clip. So, and even that is irrelevant. Heat seeking, you know, eyeglasses, and all you do is look and then you can pull the trigger, all that stuff. So, I think that the big thing would be to remember what the party really intended, which was revolutionary change, and that the guiding principle, again, quoting Che Guevara, and I'll finish right now, is that, you know, we have to be guided by love, of love of our people, love of, all, love of everyone, all of the oppressed people. We have to be guided by love because, as Che said, a true revolutionary is guided by great feelings of love. So I'm going to take the next young lady and hurry up and finish because they're getting mad at me. Thank you. <laughs> you like Che Guevara. Huh? I like to quote Che Guevara, too. Yes, yes. I personally am extremely interested in what you um, have to say about the whole Jesse Jackson fiasco with the illegitimate child, how that's blown up in the news like there are no prominent white men with illegitimate children, and also how they um, are claiming that the FBI, the IRS, and the government in general is actually afraid of him. What do you have to Afraid of whom? Jesse Jackson. Are CNN they really? has been talking about it for I didn't, I didn't know Jesse was doing anything to make anybody afraid of him, <laughs> especially the government. I'm afraid of him. Uh, I don't even care anything about Jesse and his children or any of that conversation right there because I don't even deal with immorality or illegitimate children. I happen to be a so-called illegitimate child, so you know how I feel about the question of illegitimacy. What does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. Um, so that's not even, uh, that's not even, but you know, when Jesse ran for president, all those years I've seen him around, I never knew he had a wife. <laughs> you know what I mean? And suddenly he popped up with a wife and family. I was like, where did this come from? Uh, I think that, you know, that personal stuff, is, it truly is personal in the context of things because what Jesse Jackson has done that I consider to be so insidious is that he has denounced Martin Luther King by saying, you know, Dr. King was a socialist. That was his big mistake. I believe in black capitalism. This Wall Street project he's got going with uh, whatever his name is, Sharpton, you know. Um, uh, what are they talking about? What are these Negroes talking about? Nothing. Talking about, oh, we were disenfranchising. What, you felt that voting for Gore was a meaningful activity? Oh, was good massa, bad massa? You feel better about Gore than you do about Bush? The program's the same. Absolute same program. Clinton is the one that inculcated the, 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 the Republican agenda, not Bush. He's the one that gave us three strikes. That's why so many black men are in prison, not because of Bush, but because of Clinton. But black people just love Clinton because, you know what, we're so happy to have a master that doesn't call us nigga. We're happy. So Jesse Jackson has no agenda as far as I'm concerned. He doesn't represent any voice of the people. I am not worried about Jesse Jackson and what his problems are and what white people say or don't say about Jesse Jackson or Al Sharpton for that matter. What I would be concerned about is what's happening with a kid named Little B. Jesse's not speaking to that. Nobody's talking about these children who are in prison. Uh, nobody's moving on getting them out. This business of talking about racial profiling, uh, you know, driving while black, well, there's a whole lot of black people don't have a car. 
to be driving while black. You know, people talking about, well, I, my biggest problem was I can't get a taxi cab in New York. Who cares? A lot of people have never even thought about getting in a taxi. I haven't been out of three blocks of Harlem. Let's deal with our reality and come on home to some real issues. Jesse Jackson, as far as I'm concerned, has in many ways betrayed the agenda. And I hate to say this, but since you asked me, I'm going to tell you. This is what I think. People can criticize me. People do criticize me. You know, but I stand, you know, to defend my record and myself. But the bottom line is I say that when you tell me that you believe black capitalism is, a, is the way to go, when you become so endorsed as a spokesman that all you do is talk. And now we find Kwesi and Fumi, the head of the uh, NACP, saying, well, you know, Bush is showing the potential to do the right thing by civil rights, is what he said the other day. But what difference does it make? Kwesi and Fumi support the three strikes crime bill. You know, well, I didn't hear Jesse arguing about the three strikes crime bill. I didn't hear him stepping out on the uh, question of uh, women and welfare anymore. And I heard that now women, you know, that Patricia Island and the girls saying anything with their feminist uh, vag vagina monologues, whatever that is they're talking about these days, uh, with their upper middle class irrelevant white uh, racist uh, feminism. Um, yes, that's right, it is. Because they're not dealing with any issues uh, that you're dealing with here, here in this school. You're talking about Chicanos in the fields. You ain't seen Patricia Island and them talking about that issue. And it's the same thing with Jesse. So, we, you know, we get caught up in the media images. Um, we, we do have leaders. And some of them are in the community just doing basic work and aids and basic works in community and community day to day on this campus, just trying to get some people educated and so forth and so on. And I think that I don't care if he gets criticized because um, I think that he has really lost, if he ever had, and I have issues on that too about the whole, you know, question of Dr. King. And I, I you know, I never talk about this, but I have to tell you that, you know, uh, that day was a very strange day. Some, when Dr. King walked out that, on that balcony, somebody was ready to shoot him. Now, it's very hard to be waiting for somebody and they don't show up. So somebody had to tell you when they're going to show up. And so somebody was in the camp wrong and so forth and so on. And we know that Jesse said that Dr. King died in his arms and later had to admit that he did not die in his arms and that kind of stuff. He has a history that's very questionable and we have to look at that and remember that. And so for me, I don't care if he had a child out of will, I didn't have a child out of will. You know, and the child is wonderful anyway, you know, for me. But as far as he as a man, let's criticize him on the issues. You know, it's like Dr. King, people talk about, oh, he had a woman, he didn't have a woman. I hope he had a wonderful night the night before he died. I don't care how he had it. You know what I'm saying? It's like George Jackson. I wouldn't care what he did. The man is dead. What are you talking about? So, but what I want to know about Dr. King is what this man made a commitment that gave very, his very life for, for us, truly. I mean, this is the most incredible guy. He really is a hero in the sense that he really believed all this. And for this man, Jesse Jackson, to say the man died in his arms is a complete lie, and then to have to admit it is already questionable. And it's Al Sharpton. Here's a guy who admits I was an FBI informant. He tells you this. He, worked, he claims he worked for the FBI against the mafia. So we had to know who these people are. I'm not worried about media images. I'm more worried about what's happening in our communities and that there are a lot of people, people sitting in this very room, who are probably doing far more than Jesse Jackson ever did. I don't care what they say about him one way or the other. I'm worried about what's happening in our prison systems and in our prisons, rather, where our children, 94% of children in Georgia, uh, black children, 80% of the population of prison in Georgia are black. Can you imagine that? 80%. Why? So where, where's Jesse on that? Nowhere. Nowhere. Not saying a word. So I don't care anything about it. I'm sorry to say that, and I know that's a negative thing. I want to end up with a positive thing. So I hope this next lady's going to ask me something so I can say something positive, because <laughs> I don't want to say nothing negative. Thank you, Elaine Brown, for bringing to pseudo-Barbara a little feeling of the moral community 
that all of us wish we could experience every day. Yeah. We're here, all of us, because 35, 38 years ago, in the mind of a young man in Oakland named Huey Newton, yeah. he brought his will to bear on his thoughts mm. and converted the thoughts into reality. That's right. The Panthers were gentle and strong. When they fed the children breakfast, they were gentle. And when the young men went carrying the rifles up to Sacramento, up the steps of the Capitol, right. they were strong. They were asserting their right as Americans to bear arms. The first time I saw the Panthers was in 1966, about six months after the Watts Rebellion. I was privileged to attend a community meeting in Watts where the city's CRA people were introducing their new housing program <laughs> to the people of Watts who weren't yet really accustomed to speaking out. But around the walls in that room were six fine young men wearing black leather jackets and black berets, and they stood and watched, and because they had been able to speak truth to power, the people in that room also could speak truth to power. Mm. And they talked back to the CRA, they told the city, this plan is nothing but a dumbbell apartment plan. You've got it set up so you can close off both ends of this housing project with one police car. We don't like this plan. Yeah. It was a wonderful demonstration of the people being able to speak truth to power. Yeah. I would like, like to be able to ask you to help us remember all the people who were around you, you who were a hero, and all of those other Black Panther Party people who were heroes. You're not just a historic figure, but also a hero. It would be so good to hear some of their names because in this isolated world where we live now, we forget their names. That's Elaine. right. And I want to thank you for allowing me to, I'm glad you were the, the last question. What a wonderful voice. I hope everyone, I want to, I'm not going to, I mean, certainly, you know, I've mentioned Bunchy Carter and I've mentioned John Huggins and Fred Hampton, all of the whom were my friends and heroes too. And uh, as I mentioned, Tommy Lewis and Steve Bartholomew and Robert Lawrence, and of course, the first to fall, as we called him, little Bobby Hutton, 17 years old. And of course, Fred Hampton and Mark Clark and, and so many others uh, of the individual heroes. But there were some who are still languishing in prison, like Romaine Chip Fitzgerald, 32 years uh, ago, uh, in prison for uh, acts involving uh, the police because of his uh, work with the Black Panther Party. And so many others who have been walking wounded and who have ended up uh, terribly uh, hurt by uh, the things that happened to all of us in the Black Panther Party. But I would like to close, since you've given me this opportunity, you know, Bunchy Carter was the was that figure that brought me into the Black Panther Party 
in the end of the day. I mean, of course, many things were swirling around us, and so we all knew that we had to do something. But Bungie Carter was, at that time, uh, had been the head of the Slawson's uh, gang, which was a precursor to the Crips, you know, 5,000, the second largest uh, urban gang in America, or second only to the Peacestone Nation, which uh, Fred Hampton had a coalition with, with Jeff Ford and so forth. Uh, and so the Slawson's was a, were a mighty force. Imagine this under one umbrella. Uh, 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 operating obviously along Slauson Avenue in Los Angeles. And Bunchy went into the prison, and when he went into prison, he was educated by the teachings of Malcolm X, and he became a uh, Muslim minister. And then when Malcolm left uh, the nation, uh, Bunchy left uh, that, and when he came out, he was introduced to the Black Panther Party. He knew this is what he had to dedicate his life to. But you are, you're not talking about just some little guy somewhere. This is a guy who was in command of 5,000 uh, troops of the, uh, the Slauson's uh, gang. And Bunchy was... Um, you know, the way Bob Dylan said, uh, he's got everything he needs, he's an artist, he don't look back. He was an artist the way Bob Dylan meant. In other words, he not only could fight, he was not only gentle, but he was an artist and he was a poet. And Bunchy used to say poems, and so I would like to close this session, well, thankfully to you, because you gave me this opportunity, with one of the poems that Bunchy used to say that would galvanize people and rivet them to their seats. And then when you heard it, you say, where do I sign up, you know? And he had this poem called Black Mother, and he, and he would say it on the streets of Los Angeles, in the halls, he would go down to the place called the De La Soul and say it in the De La Soul and say it all over the, all over the uh, South Central Los Angeles and it was called Black Mother. Black Mother, I must confess that I still breathe or you are not yet free. What could justify my crying start forgive my coward's heart but blame me not the sheepish me for I've been sleeping in a deep, deep sleep and I be hazed and dazed and vipers fester in my hair, Black Mother. I curse your drudging years, the rapes, heartaches, sweat and tears but I swear on siege night Dark and gloom arose, I wear to honor you, and when I fall, a rose in hand, you'll be free, and I'm man for a slave of natural death who dies. Can't balance out the two dead flies. I'd rather be without the shame of bullet lodged within my brain. Black mother. Let's, let's clap for that.